0: here. Okay, let me uh, open up in uh, prayer and just like, commit the time to the Lord. Well, Father God, we uh, uh, we just praise you, Lord. I, just my uh, my thoughts just take me to uh, this closing doxology in uh, in First Peter. That uh, Father, to you uh, just be all dominion, power, forever and ever. Just uh, brings us to this place of worship and praise to you this morning, uh, or just uh, our thoughts and our minds and our hearts take us to this place of um, the ultimate sovereignty of how what you're doing, both in our own individual lives, but also in the lives of others of your own, Father, for such great and perfect purposes that uh, today we'll be again reminded of to strengthen us in our faith, um, in Jesus Christ, and for the finished work that he has accomplished on the cross, and ultimate victory triumphed over Satan. Amen to that. Father, we uh, just pray that your Spirit um, guides us in in our time of sharing in your Word, that Father, we are delighted to be in your presence, to be um, just uh, privileged to be Uh, to be in Your Word and to, again, pray Your Spirit will just give us um, encouragement through these uh, closing uh, words of uh, this epistle. So I thank You for the privilege that we can to be in fellowship in Your Word and uh, just commit this to You and for Your greater purpose and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good morning. So again, the handouts that you have there were from last week even though I put another date on there just for today to because I didn't quite get done last week, which is okay so we're gonna I filled in the answers up to this point from you for that uh I've been sharing that uh how God just you know what does God want us to learn and I continue to uh be amazed at how the spirit just brings things. Um, into clearer and clearer perspective in our lives as believers when we submit ourselves more and more. When, by faith, we um, trust in His Word completely, and it begins to shape us into more and more the image of Jesus Christ. At the same time, much like Paul, is it, it brings us to this place of greater recognition of how far we are. And I... Uh, the Spirit just—I uh, love to just continue to go through and look at um, some of the devotions and things that I've looked at over the past that just bring me to this place of application, and I can never, never tire of finding the the application points. And uh, one of the great devotionals that I tend to spend a lot of time with is, is Oswald Chambers, and I wanted to share um, one of his devotions for us, uh, at least for the first is that it relates specifically to, I think, this topic today. And as we look at uh, what Satan is doing in this world, but more importantly is that as we would get a clear understanding of the tests of our faith and the challenges that it presents. He writes, Every time you venture out in your life of faith, you will find something in your circumstances that from a common sense standpoint will flatly contradict your faith. But common sense is not faith, and faith is not common sense. In fact, they are as different as the natural life and the spiritual. Can you trust Jesus Christ where your common sense cannot trust him? Can you venture out with courage on the words of Jesus Christ while the realities of your common sense life continue to shout, it's a lie, Satan? When you are on the mountaintop, it is easy to say, Oh oh yes, I believe God can do it. But you have to come down from the mountain to to the demon-possessed valley and face the realities that scoff at your mount of transfiguration belief. Remember in Luke, when they came down immediately, it was the demon possession that they confronted. Every time my theology becomes clear to my own mind, I encounter something that contradicts it. As soon as I say, I believe God shall supply all my need, the testing of my faith begins. Philippians 4:19. When my strength runs dry and my vision is blinded, will I endure this trial of my faith victoriously? Or will I turn back in defeat? Remember the encouraging words of Jesus to Peter, that his faith would not fail, and that he would be restored. Faith must be tested because it can only become your intimate possession through conflict. This is why we, navig- we work through this navigation of suffering. What is challenging, right- is challenging your faith right now? What is it? The test will either prove your faith right or it will be destroyed. M.O. of Satan. Jesus said, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The ultimate thing is confidence in Jesus. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Believe steadfastly on Him and everything that challenges you will strengthen your faith. There is continual testing in the life of faith up to the point of physical death, which is the last great test. Faith is absolute test in God. Trust that we would never imagine that He would forsake us. Oswald Chambers. There's such great application for that for me as I thought about this section of 1 of Peter where we've been looking at for some time as, it, as Peter gives us these closing, um, encouraging words also that points to several different um, attitudes that really help us to serve as a building block. We'll call them the basics of our spiritual maturity. We have spent a great deal of time looking at those in 1 Peter 5, verses 5-11, to 11, but serves as this foundational cornerstone in our life of Jesus Christ and then the building blocks of those that are continually to be challenged in our life. I'd like to read the passage, if you're not, your Bibles are not open to there, as we've been going through these various um, attitudes, these fundamentals, these basics. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our objective. Our objective today, I'm going to build on something we've been talking about, but this in here is to believe steadfastly on him and everything that challenges you will strengthen your faith, as the chamber said. Well, the key thing from that, believe steadfastly. What Peter's going to say is, he says, resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brethren in the world. Believe steadfastly on him. Faith is going to be a key, uh, will be the answer as to how do you resist And essentially will help us to navigate through any challenges that would be before us. So, as we you see in your handouts in there, as we began our study last week, we picked up is we're going to pick up with in verses five, uh, chapters five verses eight to nine, where we focus is be of sober spirit, where Peter gives us these two commands for godly thinking. It is these. Attributes or these attitudes of self-control and vigilance that we see in this exhortation where he says, be sober, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. These commands of being sober, which is this words of self-control or being disciplined of mind. He has mentioned those at the beginning of his letter, so this is a continuation of that, a further reminder. He says to be alert. which means to be watchful or to stay awake. And he exhorts the readers to be ready for what is coming and not to be surprised when it is upon them. Persecution and suffering, they must recognize that Satan's hand is in the difficulties that are behind those things. That term, Satan, your adversary, the devil, it's the accuser, he is the opponent. He is God's opponent. He is the hostile enemy. Three times Jesus called him the ruler of this world, which is an important as we go further into this uh, study today. He's the, called the accuser in Revelation 12, verse 10, the accuser of the brethren. And his, he's trying to continue to slander us as believers. Is his target of focus. Those that are non-believers are already his own. They're under that influence and control. He unjustly accuses those of evildoers, of believers doing good, and recognizing that behind this is Satan. His view, Satan's MO, is that of success. We saw we sort of unpacked a little bit about Satan when looking at Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and 1 Timothy 3.6, as he talked about even the qualification of elders to be careful of those who are novice, that they would fall into temptation of pride which was similar to that. And so it was pride that dr- drives Satan. This aspect of success, which we, we see in Scripture, is he refers to his glory. To bring him the glory is success. So his temptation on men is driving us towards this basis of success. We looked at the First Chronicles 21.1 that specifically said that here Satan... We looked at this aspect of the temptation on David because he was more focused on counting the census and the the number of people about, again, success. But for those who suffer, Satan tries to convince them that God cannot be with them and cannot care for them. He sees suffering as the opportunity to turn us from God. And again, what happens in our faith in this, that it becomes tested in there, is that what we'll see shortly here is that the circumstances of our life, what happens depending on how your faith is strengthened, where it's at, we believe that our circumstance is unique. And that what I'm going through right now, obviously none of you are going through. And so therefore, it is so unique to me, that therefore I have to resolve this and, and I lose that. And this is part of the encouragement that we're going to be reminded of today. He's saying, no, we're all going through the same thing and others have as well. We looked at Um, Peter talks about this suffering. We look specifically at how we see this connection between Satan's view of suffering and glory through the temptation of our Lord. In that first temptation, Satan's objective was that Jesus should use his power to end his suffering. Remember the hunger. He said, go and, and reveal your glory by turning those stones into bread. That second temptation... Where he says, to let him put himself in a situation where, remember, he said to throw himself down. Where suffering was inevitable, knowing that God would save him. It was, a, And then the third temptation, which was he offered him the kingdoms. and He offered him success, glory of the earthly kingdoms, ultimately in return for Christ's worship of Satan. And these temptations, they didn't end at Christ. We looked at this passage in Luke and Matthew that talked about this specifically where it said that he would wait for an opportune time to attack. After Christ's temptation, it didn't end there. It said that he departed, and what we talked about is, is that when did he show up again? We believe it was likely through Peter, through that reoccurrence of that of this what was referred to as the opportune time. And so we can understand Peter's reason for establishing a link between suffering and Satan. And he would know all too well because he failed. So, be sober and be alert. And this is what we picked up from last week. Satan's attack. I wanted to spend a little bit of time, as you can see in the handout here, as we go through this before we jump to this second part of this exhortation to resist him. It merits, again, a further understanding of this, that he is a creature of diverse methods. And at times he will seek to catch us unawares or unnoticed. That Second Corinthians passage is merits just again a review of what that passage was about. And what it talked about, remember, is it said that he would what? He would disguise himself as an angel of light. Okay? So in the context of of what he was doing there, and again, if you this is something that's important within the context of that whole passage in 2 Corinthians. Just so that we can, again, further understand the enemy. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 to 15. Now again, within the context of this is that Paul is addressing false apostles, false teachers. And so with that is, is that you have this counterfeit um, these counterfeit individuals that are coming forward, that are teaching. And it says in verse 12, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. So you see, again, ultimately their motivation. For such are, here it is, the false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into the angel of light. So, within this, you have this first aspect of his, from the standpoint of how he would actually attack, is that one is that really that deceptive way, or in other words, that is in disguise as a messenger of truth. And non-believers are those that, as Ephesians were right, those those who are captive to, to Satan already. And so Satan will use those non-believers for that very purpose and will do that deceptively or in disguise. So there's a, first of all, there's this understanding of indirectness in many ways or subtly. But sometimes, like we see in this particular passage, it is not deceptive, is it? It is not in disguise. In fact, it's very direct. And he declares himself in that passage as this, he says, resist... Be sober, be vigilant, be because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. So, as we, this is sort of where we left off a, a little bit last week. And in a couple of the passages that are listed there, I'll just read two of them since I'm already there. In Psalm 104, Psalm 104 verse 21, it says, The young lions roar after their prey. The other one I want to highlight it's, a, it's that verse, to a degree, that you have this picture of this lioness roaring after its prey. But it's the Ezekiel passage which is of interest. Ezekiel 22, verse 25. And in that passage, it's specifically addressing the, the, the wickedness in the leaders. Okay, Israel's wicked leaders. And he, and he describes them this way. Um, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her. You are a land that is not cleansed or reigned, this is Israel, reigned on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her of her prophets in her midst, here it is, is like a roaring lion, lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. So in that particular, uh, in that Ezekiel passage, you see this picture of this, that, of this roaring lion going after his prey, the devouring within the context even of a leader. In this case, Israel's wicked leaders, thus the influence even of Satan. Mark? It's just to
1: build on that, you know, I think its uh, approach.
0: Yeah, it, it, the directness of this thing I think is critical because um, I, I even liken the, the Amos verse. He says that... Uh, and again, he's talking about the natural things. of He says, "Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey?" The fact is, is that there's a recognition of prey, and so therefore he is roaring. Last week we said, you know, it was, and I really, I mean, how can you find something, uh, you know, about researching? Saying, "Well, why would I, you know?" It's like, what is why does a lion roar? So let's go ask a lion, so we can put it on, uh, you know, <laughs> Wikipedia. <I> mean, <laughs> I don't know. Other than we understand from the standpoint that as they are observed, it is um, to demonstrate what a dominance. It is a territorial type of statement. It could be used as um, part of the roaring as they watched in some of the the various packs. Uh, what do you you don't call that a pack? What do you pride? pride. Appropriate, <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> the pride how. You know, Maybe the older lions will roar, the younger lions would attack the prey. But the bottom line is is that what, the, what we see within this is that clearly it is a roaring lion. So it is an announcement. And I, I, I think you've hit on a very key thing, Mark, is that it's announcing the hunt. And so what Satan is, his methods is some are covert, subtle, disguised, Others are, I'm coming after you. It is, you are being hunted. Believers are being hunted by Satan, and so, what is the, the natural response to that is such in such a way as that it is fear. It is fear, because when you are fearful, we are not faithful, <laughs> and when we are fearful, is that we fall prey. They get their prey.
1: Bully. You know, first, they just dominate. Put it out there. But they don't even have to hit anybody yet. Hit somebody, and it spreads. They spread the fear first they just
0: stay out of the path. So I'm going to use your I, I'm going to use your example. So the bully vainly believes that he is invincible. He's powerful, uh-huh. and he's just a punk. <laughs> you yeah, know. But that is that is this what it's being communicated by that. And so it is. It's for the very purpose of, you know, this confidence, this boldness, does that not define Satan? It's exactly. And so it is this picture, is that I'm coming. And so it 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 is a different type of understanding that one needs to be understood and respected in many ways. I, I truly believe that as believers, even is that we have a responsibility that he 's going to teach us about this here of how we how do we deal with that the fact that we know we're being attacked and hunted, he tells us what we need to do, and that is to resist so this devourer has a sense of this gulping and where it says that his objective is is to devour and destroy, and he seeks believers in such a way as they he would attack them. And in these attacks, as I want to run a parallel, if I could, for a couple ways that we see that how does Satan devour believers. I believe one way he does it is just like we see it, as I was communicated in this, is that it's a direct attack. He will attack believers directly. I don't need to read this to you, but tell me how Job was. Was that a direct attack? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a direct attack. You know, his, his whole ordeal and eventual triumph, ultimately at the end, was by faith, wasn't it? Interesting. Peter himself, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, a key verse, remember that? It said that he, he was. It said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter himself experienced directly Satan's attack. What about, uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12 for a second. I need your thoughts on this one. I went to this passage in 2 Corinthians. This is Paul, right? Was Paul attacked directly? Absolutely. But let's let's look at this passage. We, we use this passage a lot. Let's try to understand it a little bit more. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Someone have that and we can read it.
1: So to keep me because of the fasting greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me, a, mes- a messenger of Satan, to harass me. Three times I, put, I pleaded with the Lord about this, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for, me, for my power is made perfect. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weals, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
0: What's the thorn? It says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. I know, hey, that, that passage has been a mystery in many ways, right? You're saying, well, what is this? And it says, though, that it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. It's interesting, is, is that, how did, you know, so was it something physical? It's interesting, is is that in some of the Old Testament passages that refer to a thorn, I'll read a couple to you that are kind of interesting. Numbers chapter A little extra credit here. Numbers chapter 33, verse 55. Numbers chapter 33, verse 55. I'm going to read this to you. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those who you let remain shall be irritants to your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Joshua. is another one. Joshua chapter 23. Verse 13, it says, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. We don't know, but it could very well have been. When it says, a messenger of Satan... I believe and I look at the context of that within what Paul is struggling with at with the Corinthian church it's the opposition through people the the, the non believers is the influence and when you think about the fact that anything that he can do to try to um, influence and destroy it becomes is like this this a person is a thorn in my side physically I think we all have thorns in our side that do humble us. but within that is that it was given to him for that very purpose. It was part of that humility of breaking that down. And I think part of what we're going to learn about today is, is that there are people that Satan is influenced and non-believers that are attacking us personally, as believers, and what, how do we respond to them? Are we in an attack mode, or are we resisting? That. All oh, that
1: so many revelations.
0: Absolutely, I think the objectives and all what was accomplished through that is key, and I, I'm trying to just to get it as, when, when we would look at these. What, you know, what is a messenger of Satan? It, it is a it's a demonic agent. It is an attack. It's an assault, in on whom? On Paul directly. If you were gonna, if you wanted to stop. The, the birth and the growth of the church. He's my target. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get him. I'm gonna break him down. Let's go further on that. Oh, you know what? Uh, you know what? I didn't put this passage up there, but I it was this morning. I was just going back through this um, about Paul. That, that's sort of the what I would call it, like the direct thing. You know, like I, I went back to like. Um, like Romans seven, where you see like the influence of the flesh on Paul and what he struggled with. So, in other words, the in that clearly, it's not like it's like there's a difference. We can no longer just say well, everything is you know the devil. It's all the is responsible for everything. It's sin, but yet, as the influences of the world through that that Paul struggled with, he really wrestled with that. Uh, the Romans twelve. One and two passage. What does two say? To not be transformed, to be transformed by the renewing, but not to be of the what? The world. It's the world system. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. And so that is again sort of the indirect way is that that is happening is is through the culture, through the world that he is working in. So it's a direct. It's an attack. It's a it's a person. It's a thorn in the side but it's also the influence of the world. How does Satan seek to devour believers? He also may attack believers through relationships or human relations. And I'm going to give two specific examples, even though I only listed one verse there, which I listed as sort of the marriage. Um, we don't have to go there so much other than I'll give you the context of that passage. I just want to read one thing in that, that passage. This was the, uh, where Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is talking about the husband and wife relationship. And so, I'm going to work backwards from this and what he is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, verses, in verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again. So what? so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That not recognizing, in other words, any type of selfishness on the part within a relationship that even manifests itself physically in the intimacy of the marriage itself, what happens to marriages? They, they break up. He, he attacks that. And this is one example because Paul is saying because Satan does tempt because of that. So in other words, is not being having a relationship and intimacy is going to drive the temptation to go elsewhere. That's clearly what you see behind that in it. And so it is this attack specifically within the marriage, within the family, again, a key foundational part of, of Scripture is the sacredness of that intimacy within the relationships. So he's going to tempt that. The one I want to add to that also is in Second Corinthians two. I didn't. I forgot to put that one down there. Second Corinthians two, verse eleven. 2 Corinthians two. A lot of context in this one, but um, basically,
2: um,
0: Paul was offended, and so. He leaves, and so he's coming back. And what's happened is, is that, obviously, based on the context of the passage, going back to the beginning of chapter 2 of this, is that the church took care of business. They dealt with church discipline. Okay, So, there was, what Paul is saying in here, is that, look, I forgive, just like you do too. Because what was happening is, is that they were They were still going at this person. They were still holding it against. And and so what Paul is saying at the end of those verses, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. That's what this person. For to this end I also write that I might put to you the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, stop it. It's, It's love him. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For in it, indeed, I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Clearly, what he was calling out there was that Satan's M.O. through that one was to bring disunity within the church. And through the fact is, is that here you had a repentant believer who went through the discipline and everything, the church handled it, but now there's still, it's like we still remember and he is saying, forgive, let it go. That's what Satan will try to do. And so it it all falls within his attack on believers both within the family structure but also through the church. Okay? And lastly, To build on that last one, which is through the church itself. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. This is where um, Paul is instructing Timothy to choose well qualified men as leaders and as shepherds. And he says, someone read that. Read 1 to 7 there. Good. Here is a
1: trustworthy overseer must be above. Violent but gentle, that quarrelsome, not a lover of money, fall well, and see that his children obey, respect, not know how to manage his own children, or his own family. How can he take care of that? be a recent convert. All under the same judgment. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace.
0: Verse seven. It's the key right there. What he's really saying this. First of all, he calls out the pride, which is that of Satan. But then he must he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach. In the snare of Satan, of the devil, is that that is his objective? Is through the leaders? We had that whole couple of weeks. We just talked about that. Is that he's going to go at those leaders to discredit, disqualify, and so he'll seek to destroy the church's unity. And by doing that, he discredits the whole testimony, the effectiveness of the body. The other passage that I listed there, you don't have to go there. That's that First Corinthians. Ten to thirteen passage, and remember, this is the one where the passage where uh, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of of Chloe's household, that there are there are contentions among you. Now I say this: that each of you says, "I am of Paul," "I am of Apollos," and "I am of Cephas," or "I am of Christ." Is Christ divided? Question mark. And so even that one is this focus of the elevation of the leaders themselves. can again, bring this division. It's sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Mick. I'm, I'm not with Mark so much, but I'm with you. This is the division and divisiveness, so he'll break down the church through that. So Peter goes on. Though Peter has had much to say on the subject of submission, in this passage he directs, he goes on takes us to exactly to the opposite and that is to resist the opposite of submission is resistance so he's basically saying we are not to submit to satan no matter how authoritative that growl may be or that roar it doesn't matter do not submit and what we've seen in like in that James four seven passage, which is many times we, we overlook that part where it says, um, in four seven, it says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and what? That he will flee you. Okay? That's a very important part of this verse, because if we're going to resist him in faith, he will flee. Why? Because he's you no know he's defeated. In Christ, He cannot win that that battle, and so there. Go ahead.
1: It's important that exists, but just be. Amen.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Peter has been taking us uh, through. And you look at chapter two, middle of chapter two, all the way to the middle of chapter three. I mean, he he went through this whole series of submissions, didn't he? He went through submissions to governing authorities, submissions to earthly masters, submissions to our spouses, submission to one another. Talked about the younger in chapter five, he talked about the younger men being subject to the elders. And so all of these, you know, basically then even concluding in chapter five, verse six, all submit. And so now he's saying, now submit to those, but resist Satan. Resist him. Resist him. So, what does it mean to resist Satan? It does not mean, first of all, to attack him. It does not mean attacking him. I want to look at two examples of that, which are interesting in Scripture. We're resisting him, believing in the Word, standing firm in faith is essentially the three bullet points. But I want to take a look at Acts chapter sixteen, verses sixteen to eighteen. If someone can go there and read that. I don't... Couple of observations from that passage, Acts chapter 16, and then we're going to slide over to Acts 19 as a, another example. Okay, the thing I want us to to recognize in this thing is is that, you know, again, maybe this is one another one of those messengers of Satan. Okay, this is the thorn in his flesh. Is sort of this, and so the fact that he was annoyed. You know,
2: greatly.
0: greatly, thank you, Mark, it was greatly, greatly annoyed, but what, what preceded that annoyance? Many days. And so all I'm going to share in there is that there was, he didn't just, you're out of here, I'm taking care of this thing, is that it, it wasn't an immediate reaction by Paul, Okay? I'm not going to read into it any further, but the fact is, is that this went on for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you. I believe it was God's timing for that. Whatever it may have been, but at the same time, it was not something that it was an immediate. Because what we also see in scriptures are those that would attempt, right? That would attempt to take care of it. Which takes us to 19. Michael went through this, which I thought was actually kind of this humorous type of, uh, section of chapter 19, verses 13 to 18. Someone read that.
1: Some of the itineraries come to invoke that. I you, by the dozen sons of high priest Dave Sceva doing this, Herod answered them, I know, and Paul were you. And in whom Herod leaped on, bastard all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house, naked and wounded. This became known to all Ephesus, both Jews and their Many of those who were now believers came confessing in their practices. For those who had practiced magic cards, brought their books together and burned them died them all. Now the value of them
2: silver. So the world...
0: Thanks, Steve R. <laughs> you see the humor in that a little bit? What was happening there?
2: you cast out demons,
0: direction of the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's take that further. I was trying to understand this a little bit. Here you have these Jewish exorcists, okay? I believe they were not even believers. So, non-believers are being influenced by demons, okay? So you have demons trying to exorcise demons, almost, that's going on there. And then, the demons, not even knowing what the others are going, what they're doing. And so they, the the one the de- is attacking now. These Jewish exorcists. It's kind of a, a confusing type of thing, because they're saying like I, the demons talking. Say, I don't know who you are. It's like a, you know, I'm, I don't know what kind of mask you have on, but I know Paul, and I you know, and I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are. The point is, is that we are not attacking because of the fact is that we understand his methods and such. But also, within that methods, we can discern from there is that there is confusion, to some degree, on that part. There's, they, don't, they don't even know what they're doing on that. And the fact is, is that these Jewish exorcists were doing this, it was clearly outside of the will of God. It was an influenced attempt. Wrong. Whether they're believers or non-believers, the point is, is that they, that influenced was that of Satan's influence, of which was weird. Don't attack. So what's, what are we called to do then? He says, but resist him firm in your faith, which is this attitude of fortitude. And how do you resist? He specifically gives us that answer in 1 Peter. He says, resist him steadfast in your faith. It is faith. It's steadfastness in the faith is how we resist. And so this key solution that Peter is giving us and a reminder is that if you want to prevail against Satan's attack, is be steadfast in faith. Just as the key to submitting to God is faith, key to standing fast against Satan's attacks, is also faith. It is that commonality. It's the common denominator in submitting to the believer, which you were saying first, Mick, earlier. Also, that that remains strong and steadfast with respect to being um, under the attack. Where it says, in I a couple of passages, Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 16, which is the armor of God. The key verse that I want us to look at is 16. Is 16. It's the key, key part of that. Ephesians 6. Remember, remember our... our my my theme verse that I've been using is that in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual lusts of wickedness. Therefore, take up the armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to withstand. It is this steadfastness that we see in the evil day. Verse 14, stand therefore. Verse 16, it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, don't don't go too quickly to the shield of faith. We are recognizing it says what above all, above all, the shield of faith. It is the key to standing against the attacks of Satan, and then it goes on from there.
2: Support what you said before. I mean,
0: it is not an attack. It is purely, a, 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 it's a standing firm that you see. It is not an advance and that we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Unless, again, Paul, even after being annoyed, took care of it. But he was an apostle. (laughs) Not in any way. Great point, Brian. Yeah. yeah. In verses 9 and 10 are such great... um, It says that it is steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Is that... From verses 9 and 10, and from even through this, is that I want us to recognize some key things that really encourage us as it relates to encouragement in faith. And the first one is that he gives us is that he's saying, Look, we can be firm in our faith because we're not alone. You can be very firm and steadfast in your faith because the opposite of what I said earlier. No one can be going through what I'm going through. This uniqueness of it, you just say, "You're wrong, Dave." We all go through it, and some of the passages that I've listed, and a bunch of them in there, that really just drive that. That just drive it. The one, the first, uh, the First Corinthians 10. Remember that there's no temptation that what that is that is common to man. First Corinthians 10:13. I love the Second Timothy three twelve. It says, "Yes, all, not some, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." We all have gone through this, and so that the encouragement and Peter went through this again at the beginning of his his letter in First Peter one six and seven, and again at four nineteen, is that these are reminders that we have gone through this to shared in the sufferings of Christ. Um, Mark, I'm surprised you didn't jump on my Hebrews thirteen, 13 passage. But the, the Hebrews thirteen, I'll just there's just a little couple of words in there. It says, "Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated." Since here's that, since you yourselves are in the body also. In other words, they, and then he goes on. Look, all of these things that they've gone through. God allows. These, this form of this, the, the, the testings, this sufferings, to ultimately, which he starts to encourage us by, for the very purposes of completing his perfect plan and purpose for us as his own, as believers. And that's what he's going to build up to. So you're not alone. This is a great reminder for us. We love to be in company. Uh, it, it's a, a year, it was a year ago that I had my knee replacement surgery. And the weirdest thing is is that I have this bond with anybody that has had a knee, knee replacement surgery. It's the weirdest thing, but, you know, I could be, I saw a guy in shorts, you know, and he's got a big scar, I'm going like, okay, yeah. did you have a knee replacement? Yeah. It's like we are, we're buddies. There's this relationship that's going. This is the same thing is that what I'm going through, the very trials and the testings, is that we have the brethren to do that—the great, great thing of the church—and that to be in that fellowship and the partaking of the sufferings of Christ together. The grace, the God of grace, will also it says will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, and so it moves us on to the next attribute, which is and hope. The second basis firm, in other words, part of those encouragements. So we've got this build-up. We've got the fortitude, and now we have the hope that we have in what God is doing. The second thing that can really serve as a basis for encouragement for us, for our faith, is knowing that while Satan is seeking to destroy us, that God will sovereignly use opposition to further His purposes and to strengthen our faith. I didn't list the passage here, but mark it down. 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, this is what it says. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. It's a promise. God is faithful, and he will establish and strengthen you and guard you from Satan. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3. What I love most about this is that it is God himself it's personal, isn't it? <laughs> I love this. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternity by glory, after you have suffered while perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. There, there's nobody else. It's God. It's a personal. It's a personal aspect of it, of, of being a recipient of that grace. And so then when Paul, in a series of staccato ways, he takes us through these concise promises and this is almost, this is like almost verbatim, it's like the second time he's done this, going back on the bookend of this, at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 7. Remember he said that just for, you're going to suffer for a little while? He again reminds us, like, it's like a bookend. Remember this? Now I'm going to say it again. Look, you're only going to suffer for a little while. Just a while. And so it is, he describes this process of spiritual maturation, of the continue to work of God in sanctifying you and I through the circumstance, through the trial, through the test. Per- perfect means to bring to wholeness. One verse, I won't go through both. Hebrews, excuse me, uh, Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this what? This very thing? That He who began a good work in you, He will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ until the day of Jesus Christ. Be confident of this very thing. It is to bring to wholeness, perfection. It's said to confirm, to, which means to, to set fast. Psalm 90 and Psalm 119, you talk about this, and these words are almost interchangeable. If you had an NASB or any other version, it's confirming or establishing. It's to set fast in place. To strengthen means to make sturdy, it is this verse again in Second First uh, Thessalonians three two and Second Thessalonians that talks about this strengthening from God. Is to make sturdy, and then finally he says to establish, which is this of foundation. So when you look at these words of perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish, what adjectives are things that can? How do you picture that in your in your mind? What are some of your thoughts? For
1: me, it's like. You know, hard
0: Absent, I mean, it, it, it signifies this strength, this immovability, as you've just described, Mark. But for what purpose is that absent that in our own personal lives, with our faith, if that's not described that way, it becomes weak. And so, therefore, how can you, how can you be in this battle absent that foundation? Not, again, in an attack mode, but it's purely as a defense, as the foundation's of our faith. Of
1: our faith. And reminded of the purpose of the church, right?
2: He said, oh, we are no longer children. not this way. It just feels to me I heard, I heard this uh, in the talk show. They were having this woman, But she was a model who came to Christ, and I wrote like, a book about how she was. the person who was interviewing her, they asked her, and he said, you know, as difficult as you've been out talking about this book, and she's like, oh, sure, i go to some of these talk show hosts, and they just will assail me and think, that all oh, this is all about money, and you bring, just, but, um, it's not about that. I feel like what the Lord's calling me this is for the girls that, that are out there in the industry. That, but kind of like what you're saying, that when as she faces that spiritual battle, the Lord uses either one, right? That, that he'll pull you both. one who are sympathetic to her to let her speak her voice. And the ones that are attacking her, I'm sure the girls who are listening mm-hmm. are experience that and feel that. And then they, but that, that mm-hmm. connects on them on a different level. So even when you said at the very beginning here that God's purposes are going to be accomplished but through opposition or through. Obeying him, and then that, that strengthening her, and then you see, you know, the Lord's with me, and that's kind of strengthening her faith. As long as you have that trust, the Lord's purposes are accomplished. And trust Him in it, then even the opposition strengthen you. As you see, look, oh, God even used this in a way I didn't expect. You know,
0: it, it, there's there's one of two sides in this thing. Is one is is that you could uh, nowhere in this is this about strengthening me personally from the standpoint of a fleshly type of. Mindset or anything else it has nothing to do it. It is purely to be strengthened on the foundations of God in that when you look at this, it's, it's, it's simple. I mean, it's the Word itself. This is where we're standing firm on that, not of myself. Because that's where the battle is itself. It's going to go at, again, with Satan's MO, which is success and glory to you and for us to then doubt. That God has a greater purpose, or that there's, what I'm going through is unique to me, I'll get through this thing. Uh, quite the opposite. I believe that that, that what he, Peter is con- closing on this, in, because he does mention Satan for the very, very first time, that the verses that surround that, even to this last doxology, I think, connect again to ultimately the victory of Satan over, I mean, the victory of Christ over Satan and that dominance, that sovereignty, knowing that Satan is behind the suffering.
2: Build on that just like you mentioned here, but it's just so powerful to me that says that, he says,
1: grace um, will, it doesn't say perfect, confirm strength, mm. so there's this like, ongoing like, personal involvement in I think he says that because he's like, Satan
0: has no. But let's close with this, this amen, this doxology, it's just such an awesome ending to this. So he says, in, uh, to him be dominion forever and ever, Amen." And so it is this foundational attitude principle of ultimately of worship, worship of God, God alone. So the, this third basis of for a firm faith is in confidence that we would have an encouragement is knowing that in response to God's promises, believers' minds must be constantly filled with an attitude of praise and of worship. We see this at the beginning again of the letter in, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, again in chapter 2, verse 9. It's interesting to me is that when I look at this doxology, to him be dominion forever and ever, amen. This is the second time that he's done that. He did it He did it in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, uh, In all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. And so... Since He has all wisdom, power, authority, and sovereignty, He is worthy of our praise. Some closing thoughts. As I look at this final doxology, to Him be dominion. Within the context of what we've been studying for the past several weeks about Satan, it's like saying, dominion belongs to Him, not Satan. Satan. Okay? My own words added. He, God, he dominates. (laughs) My own words in there. Everything in the universe is under God, not you, Satan. Mm -hmm. Rejoice in it. And this, um, our our Alex, uh, new little word now that he's, is of course. Of course, Papa, of course. I'm gonna quote my grandson, and it's saying, of course. <laughs> amen. So be it. Confirmed. Of course. God has the power to strengthen us, his own, in any type of circumstance, and undergo any type of suffering or persecution. Of course, he does. That's what the Amen is there for. Put your own thing in it. So, so often it is this it's a certainly, it's a certainty. And I want to tie it back specifically to the fact is, is that the reminder is that Satan has been beat. And so to those persecuted believers, he is saying our hope and our encouragement and our worship is to the, to the victor in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. No better place to close out for today than that. Mark, could I ask you to close us in prayer? i appreciate that. Thanks.
1: Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord. Uh, thank You for our circumstance sovereign. Lord, we know
0: and see the bigger picture. pray that as we hear the word we find. Amen. Thank You.